A proud DC Bar member benefit, LawPay makes it easy to securely accept payments anytime from anywhere. Their proprietary technology prevents commingling of earned and unearned funds and protects your trust account against any third-party debiting, ensuring compliance with ABA and IOLTA guidelines. Schedule a demo at lawpay.com slash dcbar and see why LawPay is trusted by 50,000 law firms. MyCase is a top-rated end-to-end legal case management software that helps firms run efficiently from anywhere, provide exceptional client experience, and easily track firm performance. Streamline day-to-day firm processes in one easy-to-adopt solution. Lead tracking, client intake, case management, e-signature, billing payments, and more. DC Bar members are eligible for a 10% lifetime discount. Start your free trial, no credit card required, today. Hi, everyone. This is uh, Kirk Schroeder. I'm an entertainment lawyer with the law firm of Schroeder Brooks. And I'm pleased to give you, on behalf of Brief Encounters for the DC Bar Communities, part two of our discussion on uh, music, publishing, and licensing. And I have uh, with me the continuation from uh, part one, our guest, Jeff Brabeck, who's an executive with the BMG, and Todd Brabeck, who used to be with ASCAP and is now consulting all over on uh, music publishing. Tell me your titles real quick, because you guys are close friends. I don't, I don't even think of y'all as a titles. Jeff, where are you at right now? Yeah, I, I'm a senior vice president, uh, legal and business affairs for uh, BMG Rights Management. We're the fourth largest music publishing company in the world. And we've also started a record division, uh, which is mainly based around BBR Records down in Nashville. So we've gone uh, both sides of the equation, both the song side and the master recording side. Okay. And Todd, you I know you were with ASCAP. Yep, for many decades, I was executive vice president and uh, worldwide director of membership for ASCAP. I'm an entertainment attorney. I teach at USC, the, a course on exactly what we're going to be speaking about tonight. So and I, I consult you know, a, a lot of these days, and I'm a lot of expert witness testimony and opinions. I, uh, I'm normally brought in by law firms these days. And for our audience... Todd and Jeff have, I think, what is the premier book on uh, music publishing law and the business practices, and that is uh, Music, Money, and Success, which I think is now in its eighth edition. Is that right? Currently, yep. Yes, I highly recommend if you are uh, an entertainment attorney or just someone in the music publishing industry, uh, the Brabeck book on uh, music, money, and success and music publishing. So as mentioned, this is a part two of a podcast on music sync licensing. Part one, we focused on film and motion picture. Today, we're going to talk about television uh, programming. And I'm just going to just, let's just get the ball rolling. Who wants to talk about just some of the basic considerations on uh, licensing music for television program? Yeah, this, Jeff, I'll I'll kind of give you a, a real overview first of the opportunities involved. This is an area where if you're a music publisher, songwriter, or even if you're a record company, is extremely valuable for opportunities. Before the pandemic, and and this will get back to the same uh, level, uh, there were over 475 scripted TV series in the United States on an annual basis. Now, you're talking about scripted series, you're talking about anywhere from eight episodes to 22 to 24 episodes. So as you can see, there's an enormous opportunity for music and music licensing in many of these scripted series. What we're going to talk about today, we're not going to talk about writing for music for a television show. We're going to talk about 
uh, the licensing of pre-existing musical compositions. And much of what we're going to talk about has to do with record companies and master recordings as well, because in many respects, if you're using a song in many of these scripted series, so you're also using the original master recording or re-recorded recording, other than the, the music-centric shows where you've got a performer actually singing, but I'll actually get into that. How do they go about finding music? What's the basic shopping method in this? Because I'm sure we have some lawyers who have um, independent musicians and composers that have masters, and uh, and I'm sure they're probably wondering, how is music discovered for television programming? Well, I, I, a lot of this discovery comes from uh, the, uh, the music supervisors for the various shows. Uh -huh. um, because in most scripted series, you've got a music supervisor who is at least suggesting music. And these people have an enormous ability to really know various genres, various ages of music, uh, who recorded what, what record companies are easy to deal with, what music publishers are easy to deal with, what songs need approval by the writers, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of considerations that go in, but it's really the music supervisors are extremely important. I know BMG, we've got a staff that just promotes music, you know, either by samplers, uh, digital samplers, uh, CD samplers, you, you name it. And, you know, we're targeting, as our other publishers, we're targeting all the various shows. And in order to target well, you better have watched the programming because, you know, you're not sending in songs or master recordings that have absolutely no relevance to the type of music and type of plot that's being an era you know, that's, that's involved with the particular show. So it's a very sophisticated science. And, you know, the large music publishers, you know, we've got songs dating from, you know, the 1920s through uh, 1922. So a lot of us can fill in a lot of blanks depending on what series are looking for. And you all have an operation, as you said, that targets. So, you know, for those uh, lawyers that are listening and you have independent musicians, it's really targeting in, in a sophisticated and professional way uh, music supervisors are those that will be actually making the selection for the programming. And, um, you know, that may be a, a, a taller task is given how competitive the field is in, in this regard, given the amount of money it's at stake. Let me just mention one other thing about the market. If you look at uh, the TV Guide magazine, there are 88 particular channels, uh, you know, cable channels, over-the-air channels, et cetera. So you've, you've got all these channels running music and series and episodes. Then you've got all the various streaming services, the Netflix, the Amazon Primes, Hulu, Disney Plus, Apple TV, et cetera, et cetera, uh, also programs. So I just wanted to emphasize once again that there's a lot of opportunity out there for the placement of music. So we know that there's a, a big audience uh, here. What, uh, what are the types of sync licenses for music in the television space? Yeah, there are two basic types of license, primary licenses that are in the uh, the synchronization space. And basically what we're dealing with is something called a synchronization license. It's the insertion or, or the including of music into an audiovisual work, you know, as simple as that, whether you're on the record side, uh, which is many times called just a master recording agreement. Uh, but on the publishing side, it's a uh, music synchronization agreement. There are two types of licenses, primary, uh, depending on the type of show. You've got dramatic series, and you've got the music and dance centric series, such as The Voice, uh, you know, The Masked Singer, et cetera. I'm going to deal with the dramatic series first, because that's a much more straightforward license than the, than the music centric series. I'll give you a quick example. And 
what we're dealing with here are life of copyright licenses. So when you actually license a song into a, an episode of a TV series, uh, you're licensing it for the life of copyright. They can distribute that episode for the life of copyright of the song. There is a one-time fee in almost all cases, which covers an awful lot of rights, very broad rights, and I'll get into that very quickly. And the requests are fairly straightforward. They usually come in via email. And I'll give you an exact uh, specific example from uh, the marvelous Ms. Maisel, who uses quite a bit of music in their television episodes. And basically it comes in, uh, it's addressed to the synchronization people at, at a company, whether it be the publisher or the record company. And it's entitled synchronization, quote, request. They give the name of the program. They say, we are interested in clearing the following composition for use in the show, et cetera, et cetera. They also many times give a synopsis of the show. So before the season ever started, you know, you got an idea what it's all about. Do they already know what songs they want or are they asking you to throw some songs at them? In, in, in this case, they know what songs that they want. Got you know, it. Okay. They're, they're a music supervisor. Uh, you know, we may have sent a bunch of songs in, but these you get a specific request. On occasion, they'll ask you for suggestions, but most times they know what songs they, they want to use. And basically they'll list the composition, the title, the writers, use timing. The use in this particular one was background vocal up to three minutes. So you knew that it was going to be in the background of a scene, more than likely. Uh, no more than three minutes. Normally in these situations, they want as much leeway as possible. So a lot of times they'll say three minutes because the scene has not been shot yet or it's been shot and they haven't decided how long the scene will be. So they like to give themselves some leeway. And then very important, the territory is always the world or the universe. More than likely in almost all contracts now, it's the universe. Why be restricted um, in, in this area? And also the term is life of copyright. Now, a lot of TV companies and motion picture companies use the words in perpetuity, but you, you can only uh, license something while it's under copyright. So we always cross out in perpetuity, but life of copyright. For some reason, they think they're getting more rights in a longer term. Yeah. But that, right, that's you have a public there. domain uh, issues that come up after that. Exactly. And then uh, they've, they've got a, a, a fee with, with a blank space and you are requested to put your fee in what you're suggesting. So it's a very straightforward process, depending on the fee you put in, uh, you know, if there might be a negotiation back and forth. And also one last thing, depending on the scene description, mm -hmm. if the scene description is fairly vague, then you might wanna have additional information so you know exactly what's happening in the scene, whether it's comedic, whether it's not comedic. And if there's a change of lyrics, that will always be in the request. And if there's a change of lyrics, you always ask for what the change is because a change many times can really affect the future earning power of a song. If it's very substantive and sticks in people's minds, sometimes you might lose uses in the future from other from motion picture companies, advertisers, because it's become so identifiable with the change of lyrics. So you've got to watch yourself in, in that situation. Yeah. Now, let me ask real quick on the scene description. Uh, that's really uh, critical because I guess, are you always having to go back to your writers uh, and ask them uh, if they approve or if it's something funky that you're not sure about? Uh, do you just take it on a case-by-case -case basis? And many times, it, it depends on what your contract says, first of all. You know, if, if there are no restrictions in the agreement and we feel that it's a, uh, it's a good use, then we will just quote. Now, you know, that's why the legal department is very important because, you know, we 
we kind of uh, tell the synchronization department uh, what songs have to be, uh, you know, used, you know, where, where the writer has permission rights and, you know, consent rights and where they do not. Many times the, the writers have consent over certain types of scenes, you know, violence, uh, sexual, et cetera, et cetera. And other times they've got approval over all rights, depending on bargaining power. But, you know, we'll, we'll play it by ear many times. Contractually, if we have to go to a writer, obviously we'll go, we will go. And as much information as the writer needs, we'll get. And if there is no approval rights involved, then it's going to be our decision as to whether we feel the use is uh, is acceptable or not. So, so really for our audience, the scene description is really important because you don't want to create any confusion or make your staff have to figure out what's really going on. What about changes? Who owns the copyright on the changes uh, to the uh, song? The master is owned by the the TV company and the underlying music or, or the, any change in lyrics, how is that handled? The, the lyric change would actually be owned by the, by the production company, but they would not be allowed to use that with, with the composition, you know, without our permission. Got it, so okay. there, there could be two separate copyrights, one for the new set of lyric, the lyric change. And obviously we, we own the copyright to the composition uh, and, to, and to all the musical and other elements. Yeah. So obviously they can go copyright the lyric change, but the underlying composition they can't do anything without it, without the consent of the underlying composition anyway. No, not at all. In fact, all of, all of these licenses, you know, the song is put into a specific scene. They cannot take that song, that new song, and start putting into other scenes without our permission, using it in promos, uh, using it in other uh, TV series or episodes, et cetera. So these licenses are specific to one particular scene in one particular episode. And it's li they're linear licenses. We were not involved in people able able to change, you know, take the song out and put it into another, you know, scene, etc. That will come in the future. Yeah, uh, but that's a, that's a whole other element that we'll be dealing with in the future. Uh, let me ask, and maybe jumping ahead. So you you talk about single buyout fee. Does that include a musical soundtrack, album soundtrack for the TV show, or anything like that? No, not at all. Basically, dramatic TV shows are licensed under what is known as a uh, uh, life of copyright, worldwide, broad rights, all media, excluding theatrical license. So you can basically distribute that episode into any and all media, excluding you can't put it into motion picture theaters. Uh, okay. That's the only exclusion. Now, in the past, uh, a couple of times, the Game of Thrones TV series actually put two of their episodes in the motion picture theaters a few years back. So that would be a different type of license. And also, I just want to mention one thing. In this type of license, when it says all media, this includes DVDs. There's an entire video buyout, home video buyout. Uh, the soundtrack album for the TV show, it's included. No, the soundtrack album, there will be an agreement that you will get a mechanical royalty. You know, okay. it, it could be statutory. Uh, could be reduced uh, rate depending on the control composition clause, but we normally try to get this, the statutory 9.1 cent. And, that, and so you won't have any control compositions or anything like that, uh, as you might find in the traditional uh, songwriter deal is really the point I was getting to. Yeah, I, I, I've seen him in certain um, soundtrack albums, but if it's a digital album, you'll normally get straight statutory. Great. So uh, when are there back-end royalties, if any? The back-end royalty situation is uh, it'll happen automatically for practically any composition if, in effect, that uh, performance writer is involved. Just to you know, back up uh, quickly, because the back-end royalties are really the one of the most important reasons that for when you're negotiating a sync license or even if you're writing original compositions or scores, 
for TV episodes and stuff because you know you're getting a one-time fee, as Jeff said, for the sync license. But then what happens then when it when that particular episode is broadcast? And that's really called back-end royalties. And these are the royalties that every time a program is aired anywhere in the United States uh, or throughout the world for life of copyright, there's a performance right involved. And all that means is that under the performance right of the copyright law of the U.S. and other countries, anytime you use a copyrighted composition and perform it, there, there's permission needs to be granted and hopefully compensation paid. So you can't use copyrighted works and audiovisual products without getting permission to actually perform that thing. Performance licenses would be broadcasted would take it out, streaming services would take it out, and they take it out from four organizations. They're called performing rights organizations, ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, and GMR in the United States. And what these organizations do, writers and publishers, songwriters, composers, and publishers join these organizations. And these organizations negotiate license fees with the users of music, let's say ABC TV network or Netflix or Amazon or uh, whomever, they collect the money from the license fees and then they pay it back to the writers and publishers who have works performed. So yeah. that's really, and that goes on for the life of the copyright. So, you know, you have an extraordinary amount of money that can be made just in the performance royalties for sure, sure. U.S. and so, foreign performances. So Todd, just for our audience, I know uh, Jeff, we were talking mainly about procuring the sync license. Uh, which essentially will be that buyout in all media with the exception of uh, motion picture and the metaverse, which we may be able to touch on at the, at the end. And now, uh, Todd, you're talking about if you are the one licensing the music, you're getting the buyout fee on the sync license for TV. But now you need to collect the publishing royalties, right? Yeah. For the performance rights. It is the continuing royalties every time that episode is aired anywhere uh, in the world. For the life of copyright. So, and how they work is the publisher and the writer collect this money separately. These performing rights organizations, they pay the writer separately and the publisher separately 50 50. So, let's say if you had a song on the voice and uh, the two minute song, it might generate $2,500 to the writer, $2,500 to the publisher. Those fees are paid directly just for that one performance. So, you know, I could go down the list. You know, HBO would be less than that. You go to the uh, audiovisual streaming services. You're talking about millimeters for performance based on traditional media. But that's really how it works. That's, a, that's called back-end royalties. Got it. Okay. And then uh, how important are uh, music cue sheets in this? I, I assume that's going to be very uh, critical in uh, tracking the monetary yeah. uh, end of well, this. Yeah, with, with music cue sheets, I mean, they have to be circulated throughout all these performing rights organizations because let's say you negotiate a license with ABC Television Network. The ABC will have get will provide cue sheets of every show on their network. They'll give it to the PROs, who then will use that to actually pay the writers and publishers for the performances in that particular show. So cue sheets are essential to getting paid. And a cue sheet will list the writer's names, the publisher's name, how the work is used, whether it's background score, a theme, a promo, a logo, a visual vocal. All of that affects the payment, and it'll list the PRO that the person is a member of, as well as who the publisher is. If I'm representing the musician who's licensing out the sync for TV, what am I looking for in the provisions regarding cue sheets? Is there anything I want to make sure contractually uh, needs to be in the standard contract regarding the cue sheets? 
Yeah, it, it, and this is very standard. Basically, there's a whole clause in all of our synchronization licenses and should be in any synchronization license that uh, the cue sheet should be supplied within 30 days, could be maximum 60 days of the airing of the actual, actual episode. So you, you want get, to get look at the cue sheet to make sure that the way you license a song, let's say you license it for a visual vocal up to 30 seconds, you want to make sure that the cue sheet doesn't say it's licensed as a background vocal for a minute and a half. So they basically, you're checking the cue sheet information versus what you've actually licensed the production company. And if there are any mistakes in the cue sheet, like uh, misspellings, uh, wrong performance rights affiliation, et cetera, and it does happen, you correct it right away because these cue sheets are being distributed throughout the world to various foreign countries where the episodes might be absolutely, actually broadcast. Now, for the novice attorney uh, who's looking at a sync license for the first time, uh, as you mentioned, a lot of this is standard, especially when you're dealing with the major publishers. What are some of the key things that one might target in the standard form, if anything, besides the economics? The forms are pretty straightforward. Uh, they're usually about you know three to four, five pages tops. And really just uh, it goes, the, the grant of rights is very broad, the types of distribution, They'll mention free TV, basic TV, pay cable, video on demand, all TV, streaming, internet, et cetera, et cetera, videograms, you know, home video stuff. There's an indemnification clause. Uh, if there are any options, so the options will be in the agreement. It's fairly straightforward. It does talk about uh, linear TV so that you can put it into an, an interactive situation, but it's a fairly straightforward license. Uh, there's usually a schedule at the end that has the territory, the term, uh, the licensed use, uh, and, you know, whether there's a most favored nations clause, which, which I can get into uh, in a moment, which yeah. occurs in the uh, the music centric shows. But it's a very straightforward agreement. We've got a copy of the agreement in in the book Music Money and Success. Sure, sure. And, and I'm going to talk about dramatization, but I think it's important for our audience to know, especially for the novice attorney, when you get these forms, they're not highly negotiable instruments. No. Uh, and, and you don't want to make the mistake of trying to mark up something and send it uh, to Jeff because he'll probably roll his eyes and realize that you're, you're not really uh, understanding some of the customs of how this uh, works. Like dramatization of a song, I, I just want to keep us on uh, track from a time standpoint and music-centric uh, productions. Let me briefly, because these shows are very popular, let me talk about the other type of license, which has to do with the music-centric and dance-centric shows. You know, the American Idols, which is on right now, Voice, America's Got Talent, The Masked Singer, <laughs> oh, that wonderful show. Uh, basically, the difference between these shows and the dramatic series are because of they're fairly geocentric and they're fairly topical, you know, there's, they really, the territory is very limited. You know, take the voice where there's a voice show in almost every country of the world. I think it started in Belgium or Holland, I forget. But no one overseas wants to see the U.S. voice, you know, not many anyway, and vice versa. So basically all of these licenses in this music genre type of uh, show are fairly short-term and fairly limited geographically. Most of them are U.S. and Canada only. And then either is for one or two years because they're topical. There's another voice every six months, et cetera, et cetera. So you don't have long-term licenses. This actually affects the fee as well because the fees are much lower because you're licensing for you know less, less duration or less territorial. But the fascinating thing about the licenses, first of all, they're all in a most favored nations basis, which means that every song that goes into one of these shows, everyone is paid the same 
Every publisher is paid the same. Every master, every record company is paid the same, depending on how it's used. Uh, and the, the basically the criteria in most of these shows are duration. I'll give you a quick example. The Voice has two durational aspects: one from up up to one minute and thirty. There's a certain price range. Over one minute and thirty, there's a separate price range. America's Got Talent has three uh, categories. American Idol has three categories, all with different price points, depending on how the song is used. Yeah, so just so our audience can visualize this, when a talent performer comes out to compete, so to speak, how long uh, they're performing that song will affect the publishing rights uh, and what that license looks like. Yeah, that's totally correct. And also, because these are very limited licenses, you've got a lot of options. Because the, the producer might want to extend the license, the, their duration, the territory, et cetera. So you've got a lot of options, you know, all with different fees. And I'll just give you a couple, couple quick examples. If the, if the license is for U.S. and Canada, the producer will have a license to extend to the world for an additional fee or to extend for an additional two years if it's only a two-year license. There's a cross-clearance uh, license in some of these shows where... The actual episode can be performed in the view at the on the view the next day or live with Kelly the next day. There's permanent downloads. Uh, there's a jumbotron option in so you think you can dance. There's a tour after the end of the show, yeah. and there's a jumbotron on stage. And if if the scene with your song is on that jumbotron, then you're going to get an additional fee. The options are amazing. One fascinating one. This is the voice. There's an additional fee for impromptu vocalizing, not to exceed ten seconds on stage during dialogue with coaches, et cetera. The options are, I've seen 10 Well, it's just because the songs can be monetized in so many different ways. The great thing about the options is that since the initial fees are low, if all the options are exercised, you're going to be getting the amount of money that you would have actually gotten had you licensed it for a a dramatic show. Great. I want to just keep track for our time. I just want to say to our audience, if you're representing a, a performer on one of those shows, they pretty much own you. Uh, and those agreements are pretty aggressive. So this is not going to relate so much to you and your client as it will relate to the music uh, publisher as well as uh, the production company putting on the, the show. We've just got maybe just a minute or two here. Where's the future going with the metaverse? Or is there even a model right now on um, these sort of new technologies and, and what they might present in the in that experience is there anything unfolding there it's it's in a state of fluctuation right now all of us are dealing with the metaverse and it really depends on your definitions in your in your license agreement whether or not you know the territory would include the metaverse or not it all is has to do with language and restrictions in your agreement etc so it's, it's in a state of fluctuation right now. Really understanding what the metaverse is, yeah. because most people don't really get what it is. Similar to the NFT period right now, people are still figuring out, particularly as far as music goes, what type of licenses actually apply and what you're actually negotiating. So it's yeah, state of flux, I think, is a good answer. All right. Well, um, we're, we could just keep talking. This is a topic that could just go on for hours, but this has been a fast run through. Uh, again, I just want to remind our audience, if you... I didn't get a chance to listen to part one that focused entirely on film and motion picture sync licenses. We've been talking today about uh, television uh, programming. Last words or thoughts, uh, Jeff and Todd, each one of you, any last words or advice, either from the licensor or the licensee perspective? Yeah, well, one thing I'll say, you know, keep in mind, TV is on a very short time frame. So you had better know what you're doing because 
you, if you can't make up your mind quickly or know what a license looks like, you're not going to get the license. Yeah, it's a great opportunity, but you better be ready to respond quickly because these shows are being shot on a daily basis and they, they can't afford to wait. If you start looking like an amateur, you start overvaluing your composition, especially uh, you've got to recognize that there are music budgets. Uh, you're going to lose opportunities as opposed to uh, creating them. And if you lose an opportunity, you've not only lost the synchronization license, the upfront license, but you've lost all the back-end royalties. So you, you've, just, you've got to know what you're doing and respond quickly, as well as them coming back to you again. Uh, and you got a very good point, Todd, and the relationship. <laughs> you've yeah, yeah. lost the relationship. All right, uh, Todd, Brayback, Jeff Brayback, you guys are awesome. I'm so grateful uh, that y'all could do this uh, today. This is uh, Kirk Schroeder with uh, Schroeder Brooks Law Firm, and this has been a great podcast. I recommend, again, part one and their book, Music, Money, and Success, the eighth edition, if you want to know everything about music publishing. Thanks to the DC Bar and Brief Encounters, and uh, wish everybody well, and uh, hopefully we'll have some more entertainment law topics soon. Take care, everyone. Thank you very much. This episode of Brief Encounters was brought to you in part by our sponsors, LawPay and MyCase. Find out how these solutions can work for you by visiting LawPay.com and MyCase.com. For more information, check out the description of this episode.